0: An indigenous group in canada says it's found hundreds of unmarked graves at the site of a former
1: school in saskatchewan this comes just weeks after the remains of over 200 children were found at another residential school in british columbia
0: you know if you talk to people here who've been associated with this residential school they say there have been rumors of some kind of mass grave on this site for decades.
1: The schools are not ancient history. Some of their type operated until the
0: 1990s. In the early hours of the morning, members of the Penticton Indian Band spotted flames as a Catholic church burned to the ground.
2: Two more Catholic churches were destroyed overnight in a pair of fires. This comes after two other churches burned to the ground earlier this week.
1: With almost 1,000 children's bodies found in unmarked burial sites at former residential schools in BC and Saskatchewan, expected to be just the tip of the iceberg, marking one of Canada's deepest scars, Indigenous leaders say this July first should not be business as usual. Welcome to our special broadcast, the Anti-Canada Day episode called Settler Canada. It's a joint production with. The Brief and the Anti-Empire Project. It's nice to have Justin Poder with us today. People are acting with shock, surprise, horror at these stories of the graves found outside of Canada's residential schools. We are joined today by Tyler Shipley. Tyler Shipley has written a book called Canada in the World, Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination. And Tyler situates the story of the Indian residential school system in Canada and as a product of the Indian Act. And he describes it as Canada's first foreign policy and how that foreign policy shapes Canada's interactions across the world and across generations. As Tyler says, what Canada was, Canada is. So Tyler is the author of Canada and the World Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination, which was released by Fernwood Press in 2020. Friend of the show, Fernwood Press. Tyler has got his PhD at York University and he now teaches at Humber College. He's also the author of an important book on Canada and Honduras and the coup in Honduras. Tyler, welcome to The Brief. Thank you guys for
0: having me. I really appreciate it.
2: So, your book begins with the official Canadian grade three curriculum. Quote, when European settlers arrived, they needed land to live on. The First Nations peoples agreed to move to different areas to make room for the new settlements. The First Nations peoples moved to areas called reserves where they could live undisturbed by the hustle and bustle of the settlers, end quote. And that's from the Complete Canadian Curriculum published in 2017. You rightly call that a radical and absurd misrepresentation of Canadian history in light of Canada's settler project being international news uh, these past few weeks. What's your reaction to how these grave sites are being covered in the corporate media and how the Canadian government itself is responding?
0: You know, this is a strange moment for for those of us who've been sort of paying attention to the way that the Canadian state and media have, uh, you know, handled, talked about, discussed Indigenous issues in general. Uh, in the last, say, 20 to 30 years, I think there's been a shift in the last five to 10 years, partly as a response to just a huge amount of Indigenous activism and protests and resistance that has has pushed so many things into the news in ways that the Canadian state hasn't been able to ignore, you know, or or just brush under the carpet. And, And so there's been this reckoning, and i would put that in in some some scare quotes i think because i don't think the reckoning comes anywhere near where it needs to be but take my own institution as an example we introduced land acknowledgments into all of our course outlines recently land acknowledgments have begun to be a thing where at the start of a meeting or course or what have you there's an acknowledgment that this is taking place on stolen land although stolen isn't usually the word that's used it's really sanitized language
3: we were invited and now we're being
0: hosted yeah like it was this sort of you know we're all we all agreed to this you know and we're just so grateful right. it's a lot of stuff about gratitude you know and i mean i think that is emblematic of this moment where the canadian state and media and, and ruling class in general is trying to manage the anger um, and resistance that is coming from indigenous communities and people. And also the, I guess, I would say the the guilt, the shame, the reckoning that certain sections of settler society are, are feeling to a greater or lesser extent, right? And I mean, sometimes that's performative. You know, sometimes it's entirely performative. And other times I think it's real. I mean, I think there are a lot of people... You know, and I'm thinking especially of more recent immigrants to Canada, people who are immigrants from the global south, you know, perhaps over the last 50 years, you know, or children of immigrants uh, from the global south in the last 50 years, who I think very sincerely are trying to reckon with having been taught a certain thing about Canada, and now being confronted with the fact that the reality is so different. I think the Canadian state and media are trying to manage this. As best they can, they are trying to apologize when they can, deflect if possible, deflect to the church. There's a lot of deflection and focus on the Catholic Church as the perpetrator of this, you know. While at the same time, Justin, I'm sure if he hasn't already, Justin Trudeau will cry uh, because he does that. He will try to find a way to absolve himself and white settlers absolve themselves of this. But I mean, it's going to be difficult. This is it's a changed moment. At least that's my
1: perception. There's this idea that Canadians apologize, right? It's kind of like the uh, cliche of Canada, you know, and Trudeau does it sort of perfectly, right? Like, we're not perfect, we try. And the main focus of the myth of Canada is that we didn't conquer or kill, right? We were different than the United States, we were a peaceable kingdom. Let's talk about the dynamics that created the state because the dynamic that we were taught in history books was that, you know, it was a race for land against settlers, like there was the aggressive American empire, there was the French and the British fighting in the east. Now, let's just talk maybe a little bit about the dynamics that went into Canadian history.
0: It's funny the extent to which I think Canadians have tried to distinguish themselves from uh, the United States. And I used to think of that as a kind of parochial uh, thing, Oh, you know, trying to find an identity. So, you know, we just say we're different from the Americans. I've come to realize that I think it's much deeper than that. It's actually a, a, a much deeper sense of shame, uh, you know, uh, and how to absolve ourselves of uh, many, many generations an ongoing process of genocide. So any serious look at the history of Canada shows that it's really not that different from the history of the United States at all and certainly not with respect to the genocide. You know, it moves at a slightly different pace, mostly only because for population reasons, the settler population was much smaller at the start. New France wasn't a settler colony in the same way that British settlement was, so there wasn't as much pressure on the land as there was later when British uh, settlers initially start coming to Canada, and then especially after the American Revolution when the loyalists those people who were loyal to the British crown, leave the US and come to what was then called British North America and Canada. And from that point on, I don't think there is really much to distinguish between, you, you know, certainly qualitatively, what the genocide looked like, how it was carried out. It involves violence, horrific violence, you know, coercion, manipulation, treaties that are signed in bad faith, Treaties that are written in bad faith, written to intentionally allow for misinterpretation later. Uh, I mean, it involves the forced starvation of people on the prairies, and and you know we can get into that in more detail if you like. There's an incredible, harrowing book by James Dashek from 2013 that details the process by which the Canadian state cuts people off from their food sources, signs treaties that say. If you move to a reserve, we will provide you with food and with implements for a transition to agriculture and then doesn't do it so that people starve on the reserves. And rather than provide people with the food and implements for agriculture that Canada promises in the treaties, instead, Canada uses that starvation crisis as a point of weakness, as a, as a way to pressure Indigenous people to give up and fully seed. As much land as possible. So, you know, I think qualitatively to try to suggest that there's anything softer, nicer about Canadian colonialism vis a vis the United States, it's just ludicrous.
3: Why was there such hunger on the plains in the first place in Dashik's book, uh, Clearing the Plains, which you cite in. Canada and the world. It's like because of the extinction of the buffalo, which was a deliberate policy on both sides of the border. In the first instance, I guess it was to commodify the meat and turn it into a, you know, another business. Um, but then, you know, towards the end, it's actually to, to make sure there is no independent livelihood. You wrote a book, Tyler, but we know that the best way to learn history is to look at statues of uh, historical figures. Um, and one of the one of the most important ways that we've learned history in this country is to look at statues of uh, John A. MacDonald, who, when this famine was going on, actually defended conservative policy from the liberals who said they were spending too much on feeding the starving indigenous nations by saying we're doing as much as we can to keep them on the edge of starvation to keep... Costs low. The other way to learn history that all Canadians know is, of course, the Heritage Minutes, which uh, which were created by the Bromfman billionaire Canadian uh, family and their journalist Patrick Watson. And you mention one of these minutes about Johnny McDonald, and you write that he receives a slow clap. <laughs> from the gathering of the Canadian elite uh, <laughs> and the music and narration frame the glorious moment of Canada's birth. <laughs> and you, 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 what I like, you, you, know, you, you go on that in the, that in 2014, the authors of the heritage minutes could depict McDonald with no reference to the racism and genocide that were his signal legacy, the genocide that was the central project of confederation was truly a breathtaking feat of ideology. So Do you want to talk a bit about Sir John A. Macdonald's statues, uh, what he was about, his legacy?
0: Yeah, bring them down. Um, (laughs) Every single one of them. You know, I I saw this tweet, you know, a few days ago, and it was from some conservative hand-wringing. You know, it was one of these, uh, you know, in the last week, four statues of John A. Macdonald have come down, and, uh, you know, we need to take action. We need to, you know, ensure that Canadian history isn't erased. And my thought was... Yeah, we do need to take action because why was it only four? like, there's still some statues out there, right? Like we got work to do.
2: <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I liked go. when they
1: had to, in London, put uh, the box around Churchill. Did you guys see that?
3: There was a cool tweet by this historian who was like, hi there. I'm a historian who knows, the, who studies specializes in this uh, Confederate history, or maybe it was London. And it was like, and you know, nobody's asked me for my expertise, but I just wanted to say, it's easier to pull statues down when you use chains rather than ropes.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's so funny how that how the the tearing down of those statues elicits that right wing panic. I mean, it's so indicative of, of of a lot that we could get into later, perhaps. But uh, but yeah, I mean, to stick with John A. for a minute, you know, he even even the argument that you will hear that says, you know, Johnny McDonald is a product of his time, and you have to understand Johnny McDonald in his context. I mean, there is a there's an extent to which that's true. And, that, and to the extent that is true, it is correct to say that the ruling classes of Canada more or less agreed with the basic premise of Johnny Macdonald's policies. However, It's also true that at the time, people around him were like, dude, tone it down. This is nuts.
3: The Exclusion Act uh, against Chinese, he said something like, um, the mix between the Asiatic and Aryan races will not be successful any more than the mix between a dog and a fox. So... Yeah, I mean, yeah, you describe
1: him in your book as as uh, a noteworthy racist, even among his peers. And you focus a lot on the, you know, at the, the words of the time, like Aryan supremacy. And uh, yeah, like Justin's quote about, uh, he, his quote was that they don't wholesomely amalgamate. And so, you know, you write in your book that land is the main, like engine for Canada's version of for this form of canadian version of settler capitalism the role that the figureheads play in this tells us a story about canada
0: yeah absolutely and mcdonald is perfect for it because mcdonald you know and i think I actually I, I did a little short bit of his bio in the book where i said look he comes out of you know he understands from his his growing up in uh, the context of law school and and the realm of business He understands the relationship between government and business in in what is being established here. And what is being established in Canada is a capitalist, a settler capitalist state. That's one of the main arguments that I make in the book is that, look, that's what is at the heart. That's the material heart of this whole thing is to create the conditions for capitalist profits to be extracted from the land and, and from people's labor on in this place. And to do that you have to eliminate the old mode of production that exists here because it's not compatible. There was no way you could commodify the land itself, turn it into private property, and somehow have that sit and coexist with the ways that Indigenous nations used the land. It's just not possible. These are just two radically different systems that can't be blended. And so from the standpoint of Canada, then it's a project of destruction. It has to be a material project to destroy the economic, political, social structure of Indigenous life. Not just the people and not just the race. We get focused sometimes on race because of course, people like John A. Macdonald used and and thought about these things often through the language and the ideology of race. But it wasn't just about race, it was about the broader civilizations that existed here. How did people here relate to the land? How did they relate to nature? How did they relate to one another? How did they make decisions? what, What was the idea of family? All of these things. In order to build the Canada John A. MacDonald wanted to build, they had to destroy the civilizations that already existed here because they were not compatible. And when you understand that, it becomes a lot easier to understand the genocidal things that they did the actual policies be it the Indian act the residential schools all of these things
3: and you also make that point really strongly at the beginning of the book that that everybody the indigenous nations the Canadian colonists the Americans the Brit the British Empire everybody understood First Nations as foreign nations it wasn't like future part of our multicultural society it was uh it was a, uh, it was understood then and it's all of that history has been <laughs> erased it's an,
0: it's an incredible deceit it was one of the actually the first things i thought about when i was thinking about conceiving this book was the deceit that indigenous nations and indigenous peoples are a domestic canadian you know issue that the relationship between canada and indigenous people is a domestic problem that is such a deception that is such a, a I think a willful manipulation of, of reality, because precisely to your point, Justin, at the time that colonization was happening, it is very explicitly clear on all sides that these are foreign nations having, you know, foreign policy interactions, you know, so for the purpose of the book, I basically took them at their word of the moment and said, okay, you know, this, this is foreign relations. So how does Canada you know, what is its first foreign relations? This is really the first test case for what becomes Canada in how it relates to foreign nations. And uh, needless to say, it it doesn't look great.
2: How were these reserves set up as a baseline for tracking the timeline of genocide from then until now?
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's a tough question because the process changes so much in different moments. I mean, it looks very different in in the 1700s in what is Ontario and Quebec now, as opposed to the prairies in the 1800s, but things that we know and, and that are fairly generalizably true are that the reserve system, especially out west, um, especially in that that push after Confederation. So once we're talking about Canada, and to John's point earlier, you know, I I do make the argument that Confederation is about the conquest of the West and the creation of the reserve system that you're you're asking about, Nora. So. The reserve system is is intentionally designed to divide people, to keep them far away from not just from this influx of uh, European settlers, but also from one another, so that you can so that Canada could quell the possibility of a united Indigenous uh, resistance. Because of course that had happened. I mean, you know, again to go back to that point about American colonialism versus Canadian colonialism. I mean, Canada violently destroys Indigenous uprisings, uh, you know, acts of resistance uh, in the 1870s and 80s. Red River, uh, at Batoche, what is, I think, misleadingly called the Riel Rebellion, but the struggle in the Northwest. And Canada sends troops, British and Canadian troops, are sent out on on the CPR as it's literally being built, as the railroad is being built across the country. You know, some of the first people to travel it are these troops uh, sent from Ontario to brutally, viciously crush the independent nations that existed there and that were asserting their right to resist. So as a response to that, Canada's reserve system at West is all about keeping people divided, keeping them away from one another, blocking the prospects of any kind of united resistance, and then otherwise just, just isolating them and, and, making it impossible for indigenous life as it had existed to continue to exist, making it impossible for things like the Buffalo hunt to persist. You know, you can't follow the herds anymore because the RCMP or the Northwest Mounted police, you know, are now policing your ability to move. A pass system is put in place. People are not allowed to leave the reserve unless they get a pass from, from a so-called Indian agent. These Indian agents don't give the passes lightly they they run these reserves as petty tyrannies
3: yeah they use the passes and the food rations as uh sexual as tools to gain sexual access to girls and women that some of them some of those agents got killed that was like one of the early uh, some of the early acts of rebellion was to kill some of the most uh, depraved indian agents
0: yeah so i mean the reserve system is on its own the reserve system you could say probably fits the bill for genocide you know if you sort of go you know not that these definitions are necessarily that important but if you go by some sort of un definition of what is you know technically a genocide any one of these things the reserve system the residential schools the indian act could fit into that taken together i mean it's overwhelming it's just an overwhelming case that this was and is and remains an act of genocide one that just has been remarkably covered up and hidden for so long.
1: So one of the ways they hit it was after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was to put this modifier, cultural genocide. You do a really good job of this in your book. Talk a little bit about what they mean by cultural and like the way that the mask is. We're told that cultural means like singing and dancing or doing beadwork. But you talk about it in a much more uh, comprehensive way that I think if our history books used would uh would help (laughs) so why don't you do a little bit about uh cultural
0: genocide yeah you know that was such a that cultural genocide thing was I think a big part of how the Canadian ruling class was trying to manage this moment right and I think it's starting to fall apart but for a while it worked it was like hey we can admit to a lesser what's something that seems lesser and so they come up with this idea of cultural genocide and it's framed like you say it's framed as you know Canada did a bad thing by stopping people from practicing their traditional cultures, dances, you know, traditional cuisine, music, arts, potlatch, all the the potlatch, potlatch, yeah, the rain dance, all of these things that are framed as indigenous culture. And if you're in 2020, the year 2020, you can say, "Well, that was a bad thing that happened in the past." So, what we can do now is we can help Indigenous people to recover those things, right? Help them and support them. And 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 let's be honest, a lot of white Canadians, a lot of settler Canadians in general, not just white Canadians, I think would be perfectly comfortable with the idea of a wider sphere of superficial indigeneity, superficial forms of Indigenous culture. I mean, in the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver, they went nuts on the kind of iconography the superficial aspects of indigenous culture as though that was canada right as though this canada's this place that celebrates indigenous heritage look we've got all of this artwork and so on so i think it was a really skillful again a very skillful deception because i would argue that those things cuisine dance art even language you know those are those are the surface features of culture. They're, they are the kind of things that that we think of that come to the forefront. But those aspects of culture are dependent on much more fundamental elements of a worldview, of an understanding of our place in the world, of a, of a civilizational relationship to the world. Glen Sean Coulthard has a great term for it. He calls it. Um, I think it's. I think he uses mode of living. Um, And it's a twist on the sort of Marxist category of mode of production. Marx talks about how how do we make things? Who makes the things? Who hunts, who gathers, who fishes, who builds? And then who gets to have it? Who gets to eat? Who gets to eat first? You know, these are material questions, fundamental economic material questions about any society. And Glenchon Coulter expands that a little bit uh, in his book, Red Skin, White Masks, uh, where he says, you know, in the context of indigenous people, think of it as modes of living. All of those things. Who, who works? How do they work? When do they work? What's the division of labor? How is how is wealth shared? How much of it is used and consumed? How much of it is given up to, you know, the spirit world? Like all of these things that are truly foundational to any culture. And then things like the potlatch that you mentioned, Justin. It's like the potlatch comes out of that, right? The potlatch is a ceremonial manifestation of these deeper material and, and and sort of spiritual uh, foundations of a culture. That's what Canada was trying to destroy. Ultimately, Canada does not care, will not be bothered if Indigenous people perform a rain dance in the context of capitalist Canada. But they couldn't have Indigenous people performing rain dances in the context that the rain dance actually grew out of, in the culture that the rain dance actually grew out of because Canada was trying to destroy that culture, destroy that civilization, in order to place capitalism on top of it. So that's why I think that you know this—the idea of cultural genocide. What's the point? It's just genocide. I mean, it's all just. Well, the genocide. point
1: that you make that's interesting is that you say that it gives the aura, like the idea that possibly it can be undone.
0: Yeah, undone easily. Yeah. Undone without any, you know, serious. Consequences for the way that Canadian society operates, as opposed to actually, you know, actually doing reparations and reconciliation for the genocide, which would mean radically transforming Canada as we know it, which would be very difficult.
2: I mean, they'd rather fetishize indigenous art and culture and food and, you know, and do the land acknowledgements, you know, even in, in governmental settings than actually talk about reparations <laughs> and giving the land back. I mean, we see that all, all the time here in the US as well. Fetishization and tokenization, uh, isn't it great? We have, you know, native people now in the Congress, you know, we're done. Like we've, we've, we've achieved, you know, multicultural bingo without any, any sort of talk about reparations. I'm really interested in the residential schools. I kind of want to pivot to that because it's such a stark manifestation of everything we've been talking about. I mean, the, the, the genocide on many fronts.
0: Uh, I mean, it's such upsetting stuff. And when I teach my section on the residential schools and I show a few different uh, video clips, some of them from the the actual truth and reconciliation commission, you know, like my students will be in tears in the classroom like it's just so harrowing the details when you dig into the details and i'm always torn about how much how graphic to be when i talk about these things because because when you actually get into the details they are so horrific that you can't i so i'm always part of me is always compelled to to say some of the things because because most people still wouldn't believe how horrible they are, but then right. of course have to be thoughtful about those details. Suffice it to say, these were these were not schools. I mean, the, we we should we almost need yeah. to stop using yeah. the term schools when we talk about them. They were internment facilities. Yeah, you know, they were concentration camps. They had nothing to do with schooling. As a matter of fact, just today I watched. Incredible footage. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's it's from the NFB from 1967. It's a 15 minute short video of a group of Indigenous people. Uh, it's a it's a powwow at Duck Lake near Saskatchewan Alberta border, and then they confront a priest who uh, was running a school. Howard Adams is is featured in the video, and and a number of um, really important Indigenous activists when they're young, when they're still quite young, confronting this, and it's them that say these aren't schools, you know, Mm. if these were supposed to be schools, they're completely dysfunctional. They, they, they don't provide anything for us. And that of course is the least of the problems, right. With the resident, the fact that they weren't schools is the least of their problems. They were places of torture, abuse, violence, murder, sexual violence. And I guess the one other thing I would say about them is that they are very much a part of the project to destroy indigenous civilization. I'm going to use that term instead of culture, given the, yeah. what we were just saying about culture, but they were about saying, look, any I mean, and this is explicit, this is explicit. This is if you read what the architects of the schools said, they literally said, once we are finished, there will be no Indian problem because there will be no Indian. We will we, that's how we will solve that is our in fact, he used the term final solution of the Indian question. I mean, he foreshadows language used by Hitler.
2: I mean, Hitler yeah, was Duncan used Duncan. The, the history yeah. of the colonization of, of North America. Yeah. As, it was a
0: model yeah. for Hitler.
3: Yeah. It was a model for South African apartheid. Yeah. And then, you know, when I was studying this, I guess Dastrick mentions this case of, you know, Peter Bryce, right? There was a doctor who was treating children in the residential schools and he tried to uh, blow the whistle. It was like 1904, or something and uh he kept trying to call attention to the fact that the rates of death in these camps from tuberculosis i mean yeah i call them camps by accident yeah about, right yeah. um from tuberculosis were like 50 or higher you know children dying in these uh schools and he was of course punished and, and fired from his job and he wrote a book uh called the story of a national crime being a record of the health conditions of the Indians of Canada from 1904 to 1921. And the book was published in 1922. So the book was published a hundred years ago. And, you know, it's like, talk about like the perpetual innocence of Canada, right? It's like a hundred years ago, they had this book. And today everyone's like, oh my God, we didn't know. What a shock. Yeah, so let me rip off a
1: couple quotes from from Tyler's excellent book. So the Queen, this is from one of the uh, one of Sir John A. Macdonald's advisors. Uh, the Queen wishes her red children to learn the cunning of the white man, and when they are ready for it, she will send schoolmasters to every reserve and pay them. And then Egerton Ryerson, who you spoke of before, whose statue was torn down, is the home of one of Canada's most prestigious journalism schools. He wrote that. That residential schools must consist not merely of training of the mind but of the weaning of the habits and feelings of their ancestors and the acquirements of the language arts and customs of civilized life then they founded the university out named after him sir john a Macdonald. said the schools were designed to kill the indian in the child and the duncan scott campbell from department of indian affairs says i want to get rid of the indian problem with capitals Our object is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed by the body politic and that there is no Indian question and no Indian department. Talk a bit about the Indian Act and how it created the residential schools.
0: Yeah, the Indian Act is so central to understanding early Canada. It's arguably one of the most important early pieces of legislation. What many people don't understand about Confederation itself is that Confederation was very specifically designed around the idea of conquering the Indigenous Peoples of the West. That is specifically what Confederation is about, there, because you know, it's not like any of the people in Upper or Lower Canada in the ruling class in that moment had any particular nationalistic designs. Uh, it wasn't about breaking from Great Britain. It, wasn't, it was about one thing very specifically. It was about we need to come together, marshal all of our resources for the project of getting into what becomes Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and then British Columbia and connecting these colonies with with uh, British Columbia. And we have to do it now because the Americans will do it if we don't. And so, you know, it's this race to see who can depopulate the prairies first and claim it. That's what confederation is about. That's what Johnny McDonald gets the slow clap for in that ludicrous heritage minute that Justin was talking about. That is the goal of confederation. It's the immediate first thing they do is that they, they send the Northwest Mounted police out uh, as the kind of vanguard of, of this project. Then there are the invasions. And then of course the Indian act and the Indian act is like the bow on the conquest of the West and the Indian act sets up, you know, um, Canada gives itself the right to determine who is Indigenous and who is not, and how, and when that changes. I mean, they don't say Indigenous, they say Indian, but the Indian Act is about deciding who gets to be Indigenous. It's about a movement. I talked about the past system. It's about where they're allowed to go, what people are allowed to do, who they're allowed to associate with, what economic practices they're allowed to do and, and what they're not allowed to do. The, come back to the potlatch for a moment. The potlatch is an economic ceremony in many respects. The potlatch is about wealth sharing and wealth distribution, and in some cases, wealth destruction as part as a sort of ceremonial statement of like, none of us will be ahead of anyone else. It's an economic practice. It's not just a ceremony. It's not just about religion. So Canada bans it because of course, you know, Canada is trying to destroy as the residential school quotes illustrate, trying to destroy the very idea that there would be indigenous people that aren't fully assimilated into canadian society. So in many ways it's kind of like the it's that crystallization of what the founding canadian foreign policy was. And it's I think also the moment where that foreign policy gets turned into domestic policy, you know? The conquest is is finished from the standpoint of canada. I don't agree with that claim. I think conquest decolonization is still on the table. It will eventually happen. But from canada's perspective in that moment, the conquest has happened. This is now a domestic problem.
3: In terms of the connection between this foreign policy and Canada's wider foreign policy, one of the points I really like that you make, where you talk about Don and Ron and Hockey Night in Canada. And how there's like a liberal Sonora. This would be like our um, Hannity, and I don't know, there was a Hannity and some other guy, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so there's a Don Cherry and some other guy. The other guy's like a liberal who <laughs> basically, Tyler says he softens and sells the right wing message of, of Don Cherry. <laughs> and, yeah, that's, uh, that's you know, what
2: they exist to do. Yeah.
3: You also say something that I thought was really great. I've never seen it put anywhere, but it's something like, the role of Canadian liberalism is a mask for conservatism or something like that?
0: I mean, I, you know, I use Ron and Don as the kind of figureheads of that. For those that don't know Don Cherry, Don Cherry was this old-timey racist. He persisted on Saturday night during the hockey broadcast at primetime. He remained a central figure in Canadian popular consciousness well into his 80s. And he was an old-school racist, you know, he's like, you know, an old school white man who bellows and shouts about foreigners, about women. He's a homophobe. I mean, all of it in the most overt and at times insane ways. You, you, you know, you'd watch it and you'd think, oh my God, they, they still allow this? You're still allowed to say these things? How is this possible? And of course, how it was possible for so much longer than it should have been was his sidekick, the liberal, Ron McLean who brilliantly I'm gonna give him full marks for how skillful he was at this it's he's less skillful at it now as he's getting older thank God his own mask is starting to fall but mm. for years he was so good at this where he would frame this whole thing as a debate two sides and Ron is the kind of the liberal conscience you know Don would say something egregiously sexist and Ron would make a face you know Ron would make this oh geez I well, oh, you know, Don, I don't think you know, I wouldn't put it that way. The way I would frame it is. And then he would do a softer version. And he did this for for all of it, for for you know every right wing thing you can imagine. Ron would have his way of softening it. And somehow for 30 years, people were duped by this. I mean, these men were best friends. It's like in, Ellen
2: DeGeneres in, and uh, George W. Bush. Yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember distinctly when uh, the Stanley Cup finals were in Washington. This was during the Trump era. And they did a broadcast from the Washington arena, whatever corporation it's named after. and And they did a broadcast with Ron and Don and a U.S. military general. And Don spends the whole time gushing over this military general. And Ron spends the whole time gushing over how happy Don is ron even goes as far as to say well you know we went to the trump uh, speech and oh you know don he was just thrilled and, and you know you're watching this as a support you know and liberal canada is watching this and thinking or they're supposed to think oh you know i guess i guess don cherry's not that bad i mean he's just a guy right you know ron ron and i yeah, we like know
3: archie, archie bunker yeah exactly whatever right
0: yeah ron and i we know that that, that racism is bad but you know We don't have to be mean to the racists, do we? You know, we can allow, you know, we can allow people's perspectives. So Ron and Don did this liberal conservatives kind of double act, which I think helped to hide so much of what Canada is and, and how right wing, fundamentally right wing Canada and Canadian culture and Canadian politics actually is underneath the kind of the veneer of Ron McLean, Justin Trudeau, the kind of the liberal CBC milieu. Yeah, so Ron's assignment after the
1: grave was found last week, he came on the air and just started rhyming off all of the Indigenous people that he knew. He <laughs> literally just rhymed off the people and he said, you know, we, we go around doing this. God. I get to meet lots of Indigenous people. He was doing that what you just described. But he's also doing that thing where he's like, Some of my best friends are natives, you know, like, but not even because it's like he only had to do that for work. Like he actually said, oh, I met him on hometown hockey. That's the wrong way of handling
0: these kind of situations. He's like the Canadian, right? The broadcast you're talking about, he said his ludicrous thing at the start, whatever. Later in that same broadcast, and not that much later, second intermission maybe, you know how he does these weird beat poetry things where he's reciting lyrics by songs and whatever it's all nonsense but he did one of these stream of consciousness things where he talked about some hockey player that knew the guy that eventually became the guitar player in Rush the band and then he tells this long-winded inane story and finishes with oh Canada that's Canada this is less than two hours after he has acknowledged and talked about the fact that In Canada, we were uncovering or rediscovering unmarked graves of children murdered by Canada. Like, Mm -hmm. that's Canada. You opened the broadcast talking poorly about what Canada is. And then a couple of hours later, you're already trying to reel it back and reconstruct what Canada is. Oh no, no, Canada isn't that horrible thing we talked about from, this, from the top. It's this other thing where this band and this hockey player know each other, that's Canada. It's quaint, it's rural, it's about these small town connections, right? I mean, it's just, it's so insidious. But you know, you said that, I think John, at some point you said something along these lines, something about the, the cult of Canadian innocence. And I think that that Ron is that. Ron is that blanket of, of innocence for the Canadian viewer to watch and be reminded that no, 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 we're the good guys. We're not the bad guys. We're the good guys. Ron is the good guy. And I think that's reflective of Canadian culture in general.
3: To quote from the end of your book, you say, what Canada teaches us is that colonial powers can be polite, they can appear measured, they can mobilize the language of peace, and they can seem to offer help. They can do all these things and still be colonial powers.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know our focus you know, right now in, in Canada and the discussion is on that original foreign policy because it is so egregious and because it is in the news right now and because it is present in our in our lives and our friends and our communities, you know, our mourning. And, and so that's our focus. But I, I also, you know, I went to great pains in that book to say, this isn't a one-off. This isn't Canada did one really, really bad thing. And, you know, and we're forever... You know, stuck with the legacy of this really, really bad thing, but that's not Canada. Because of course, you know, Ron McLean part of his gig is to say that's not Canada. When you know, when you hear these stories, that's not who we are. That's a mistake that some people made, that we are better than. And and so the book is in many ways about trying to say, no, 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 no. You scan Canadian history, you scan. Canadian relations with foreign nations around the world across 150 years, you will find the exact same dynamics, the same core dynamics that are behind and at the root and the foundation of Canada's colonial policy. They are there when Canada helps a Salvadoran dictatorship massacre indigenous peasants in the 1930s. They are there when Canada sides with fascism in Germany, Spain, Italy, and Japan until the eve of World War II. They are there when Canadian peacekeepers are central to the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the first prime minister of independent Congo, so that the Congo falls into a right-wing dictatorship, you know, controlled by Belgian and foreign capital. They're there when Canadian peacekeepers go to Somalia in the 1990s and don't think that the Somalian children are appreciative enough of these peacekeepers who've gone to save them. So they murder, uh, torture and murder Somali children and take the story right through and into the war in Afghanistan, Iraq, the war on terror and things that are ongoing to this moment. So, you know, everything that I tried to lay out and the, the sort of the central pieces I tried to identify in Canada's foreign policy towards Indigenous nations, I found in all of these other cases, you know, in whole and in, or in part in all of these other cases. So to me, that's, I think, really significant, even if it's not our focus right now, it's to understand that this is, that there's continuity, that this is an ongoing thing and not just here, but, but in fact, everywhere.
2: I mean, there's a whole park in historic Palestine called Canada park <laughs> that was established by the Jewish national fund, which is a para state organization that, that, was established before Israel established itself on, on the population of Palestine that covers up several Palestinian villages. It was sponsored by the Canadian government. I mean, you know, the share of tax-deductible
1: donations, right? Like- <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's not right. who we are. That's not <laughs> yeah. who we are. <laughs> right, <laughs>
2: right, right. Absolutely.
3: That's contemporary too, yeah. because like um, all the whole drinking water crisis, this, again, it's like, is it a drinking water crisis? Really? Is there, is there a drinking water crisis in indigenous communities, but like, it's a colonization, (laughs) it's a colonialism, but there, there's like, there was a mine really close to one of these communities, which was the only place that had clean drinking water. And then all the surrounding communities didn't, it was like a diamond De Beers diamond mine or
0: something. So You can take tiny little pieces of the story and that, that by themselves are so egregious that that they, that you don't need the rest, that the rest becomes just, you know. and and the drinking water thing is incredible. People have been talking and and not just people on reserves that don't have clean drinking water. They've been talking about it as long as they haven't had clean drinking water. But there's been a national discussion about the lack of clean drinking water on indigenous reserves in this country for a decade or more. When Chief Spence held a hunger strike out front of, Harlem and Hill in, uh, what was that? I think 2012, 2011, maybe somewhere around then. It was during the I don't know more uh, uprising. I mean, it was on the agenda. It was it was in the news every day that indigenous yeah. communities didn't have clean drinking water. We're, t- we're almost 10 years later and they still don't. And we have a prime minister who goes on TV and cries all the time about the horrors of the past. I mean, we've had two at least significant Truth and Reconciliation-type commissions. There was the actual uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission with respect to the residential schools, but there was also the Commission on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and, and Girls uh, that released its report, I believe, in 2018. So that has been part of the national conversation. Another thing that we haven't even talked about here yet today, that again, by itself, could be illustrative of the genocide, the ongoing genocide, <laughs> But then you know to bring it back to this drinking water thing how is it possible that in this 10 year stretch when that has become widely known even among settler canadians how is it possible that hasn't been addressed i mean it just it goes to show you how profoundly the canadian state does not care and does not have the will to undo even the most egregious and obvious aspects of this ongoing genocide, segregation, apartheid, whatever we want, whatever terms we want to use for it.
1: How do we get away with it? Like as a history teacher... Like how is it possible that we get away with this like idea that we didn't know what was going on in the residential schools? The residential schools were in a lot of cases, you know, within the communities in the town. People knew that they existed. People ran away from them. Natives of course have always had stories about how about those and there are like even what you say like that NFB in 1967 like there's all kinds of examples even in newspapers you can find old newspaper clippings. Uh, It was a core part of the Canadian project. It wasn't like some secret sidebar. How do we keep structurally being able to say we don't know?
0: I mean, I think that's such an important question. And I think when I say that Canada is founded on settler capitalism and the colonial imagination, we haven't talked much about that second piece, the colonial imagination. At the time, you know, in early Canada, the colonial imagination is very explicit it's Johnny MacDonald saying that the Aryan races, you know, are the, are the superior race. It's explicit claims of the superiority of white civilization, uh, of European culture, of European technologies, and so on. You know, all of that stuff of empire. But as, you know, a, a hundred years or so pass, that ideology is still there. It's still deeply, deeply embedded. Um, it just, it's just shifted its sort of language a little bit. So to answer your question, John, how is it that people still don't know? I think it's because generation after generation of settlers have willfully ignored and or will and or justified what was going on. You know, how is it that people don't know that the residential schools are so awful? Well, it's because while the residential schools were in place, there were people who said, no, 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 they're fine, they're fine. Don't listen to that. This is what these people need. These, the, 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 you know, I don't want to replicate the language. I hate doing that, but it's like this is what they need. You know, they need a a firm hand because they are backwards, they are savage, they are, they need to be taught. That NFB film in 1967, you can hear that in the way it's being discussed even then. You know, it's the justifying of these schools. Even now, in the discussion in 2021 about these discoveries, if you go on any Twitter thread or start your own Twitter thread about these things, you will see the same justifications from Canadians today, making excuses, Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party, making excuses. So, I mean, I think that's partly how it's gone, you know, undiscovered. It hasn't actually been undiscovered. It's been ignored.
3: If you even start talking about this, there's like, Within two minutes, someone will be like, So then what do you want? You want it, you want us all to go back to Europe? Is that what you want? So it's like, yeah, they know where the logical conclusion of all of this goes. <laughs> and it goes very quickly to the fact that this whole project is totally illegitimate, right?
0: Justin, that makes me laugh because it's I've seen so many unintentionally Really dope claims by the right wing in the last couple of weeks, where they'll yeah, say yeah, like, yeah.
2: if you're yeah. if you're going to get
0: rid of the statues of Tony McDonald, you might as well get rid of Canada. <laughs> <It's, Yeah>.
2: Okay. <laughs> yes, this yeah. is. Yeah. Threaten AD me with the Israel. Yeah, exactly. the, during,
3: when, when 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 the massacres were happening in Gaza, right? There was somebody who was like settler colonialism. If you're saying Israel's illegitimate. Then that means Canada doesn't have a right to exist. Australia doesn't have a right to exist.
2: <laughs> and we're like, yes, yeah. this is the point. Thank you. <laughs> you you yeah. got it finally.
3: Um, yeah. Your book is so good that it actually has two conclusions. Because, uh, uh, so the, you know, I, oh, I yeah. read the five page 510, but page 493. And what I really like here is like the whole genocidal project is based on the idea that Canada is progress. Settler colonialism is progress, indigenous nations are backwards. We're moving forward into the future. And you know, even the Indian Act came out of the Gradual Civilization Act of 1857, right? So you have this thing where you say Canada was a colonial imposition. Despite claiming to represent progress, it has consistently impeded it. Despite claiming to represent civilization, it has generated violence and savagery. Despite claiming to be the future, it is a remnant of the past, of an era when European powers believe themselves to be entitled to conquer the world and claim its riches for themselves. For over a century and a half, that world order has been challenged and Canada has struggled to preserve it. But Canada cannot outrun history
0: forever. It really came to me as I as I went through, you know, moments like the 60s and 70s, you know, the, the height of, of decolonization, struggles against colonialism, struggles against Capitalism in many cases, whether in Vietnam, in Korea, in Kenya, in Ghana, Indonesia, you know, nearly everywhere, Canada sides with the colonizers and they're on the wrong side of history, not just ethically or morally, but also just they lost, you know, like it it didn't work. France no longer runs Algeria, despite the fact that Canada gave France military equipment to try to maintain its possession of Algeria, the Algerians won anti-colonial struggle eventually wins it just does so in that sense you know i think that same logic applies here i mean this is speculative at this point but i think part of the psyche the canadian psyche you know the settler mentality is actually an awareness that that this is borrowed time this can't last you can't do what canada did and not eventually reap what you have sown And I mean, this is, you know, post-colonial theory has always talked about this, the way that colonization preys upon the mind of the colonizer. The colonizer always knows that, you know, one day the piper is going to get paid or whatever the damn expression is. And when you look at the reactions of Canadians who are defensive about the residential school graves, you know, even just this one case, when you look at the reactions and the ones like we've been talking about where they say, well, you know, what do you want to do? You want us to leave? I mean, it's the idea that they immediately go to that, that they skip all the steps and they go straight to, you know, the uprising of the future in which they're going to be told to leave. It just speaks to the way that the Canadian psyche carries that fear, the fear that, yeah, that that rebellion is coming, that resistance, that uprising is it's coming and it's coming for them and that this land will be decolonized at some point. You know, which for, I hope for many of us, certainly uh, in this conversation, I mean, that's something that's welcome. That's something that we're, we're struggling for and and we want to be a part of. That's that's always my answer.
3: That's my answer. When people say, you know what, you want them to, you want us to send them all back. I'm like, you know, I I hope they're, I hope they're kind towards us, you know, when that happens, (laughs) Um, you know, but, but yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That is the kind version, right? Like that's, that is the kind version.
2: Right. Because their uh, deepest, their kind deepest compared to- <laughs> you know, deep seated insecurity and fear is that what they did to others will be done to them. Um, so of course they would go to that, that fear, that, that really just um, that deep fear of, of being genocided against, because they've, they have, and we have as settlers in North America reap the benefits of colonialism and genocide and there is a reckoning and it and it is coming
0: and it's funny you say the thing the fear about being genocided against I mean just yesterday I saw this clip of Tucker Carlson crying about white genocide that's right this white genocide is coming I mean it's just it's so insane that they they will view the existence of critical you know, critical scholarship on race. I don't want to use the term because it's being thrown around so stupidly, but <laughs> right. critical scholarship about the existence of race. Yeah. And, you know, and the fact that we even have discussions about race to Tucker Carlson means they're coming to genocide the right. white people. Isn't that I mean, the, It's incredible to go there so quickly. I mean, it just speaks to the deep insecurity, the deep awareness at Absolutely. some level of their culpability, you know, their complicity and, and the fact that, They'll be lucky if it, I mean, you know, they they right. should be, they should, I think of it this way, you know, I want to be part of the decolonization of this place. I want to be part of it. And I, and I, and I want to do whatever I can to support and be, and be a part of that. And then whatever the outcome is, when this place is decolonized, I hope that how I participated will be taken into consideration. But go. frankly, I mean, the decolonization has to happen. Nothing Nothing positive, in my view, can ever come out of the thing called Canada. You know, the apparatus, the state, the whole thing. Uh, it's poison. It's toxic. And that doesn't mean that it's impossible to conceive of a better society on this land, you know, that is shared, meaningfully shared, that that is meaningfully multicultural, you know, that meaningfully and sincerely finds ways of, you know, having people live next to and 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 with one another that's entirely possible but not within canada not within the structure not within a system that is founded and premised on genocide it's just not possible in my view i also think there is appetite for that challenge at some level and um so yeah you know i i don't want this to be a moment we squander we being the left very broadly defined I, we we need to be on this we need to make sure that we are in solidarity with Indigenous struggles in the ways that we can be and that we contribute.
2: Tyler Shipley, thank you so much for joining us on the special edition of The Brief with Justin Podor of the Anti-Empire Project.
0: Thank you guys so much. This has been a great conversation. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to hash this all out with you. Thanks.
2: Come back again. I will. Yeah, anytime.
1: Tyler is, again, the author of Canada in the World, Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination available from Fernwood Press.